welcome to Booking Back Podcast, where we stroll down memory lane and revisit the books of our childhood, what they meant to us, and how they've affected us today. While we, your co-hosts, are millennials, the nostalgia of childhood never ages. Join us as we travel back in time. Hi, guys. Welcome back to Booking Back. Today's book is Ella Enchanted by Gail Carson Levine. As always, we start with a quote. That fool of a fairy, Lucinda, did not intend to lay a curse on me. She meant to bestow a gift. When I cried inconsolably through my first hour of life, my tears were her inspiration. Shaking her head sympathetically at mother, the fairy touched my nose. My gift is obedience. Ella will always be obedient. Now stop crying, child. I stopped. Before we dive into the book, we must talk about the Cinderella story. I'm sure we've all heard at least one version of a Cinderella story because it's so popular. Many of us grew up with a Disney version. And if you're listening to this episode, you're most likely familiar with um, the fresh take that Ella Enchanted offers. So the first oral story of Cinderella was a Greek story of Rhodopis. However, the beginning of this story that we know was written in 1634 in Italy by Pentamerone is my uh, pronunciation of that. (laughs) From that came the famous English version that was uh, told by Charles Perrault in Histoire au Comte du Temps Passé in 1697, uh, who learned of it from the Italian version. The French version, though, added in the pumpkin, the fairy godmother, and the glass slippers. The Brothers Grimm later retold that story in 1812 in their book Grimm's Fairy Tales. They called it Ashenputl, which means ash fool or little ash girl. That version had no godmother and is more bloody with the stepsisters cutting off their toes in order to fit into the glass slipper. Even outside of Western literature, there are versions of Cinderella. Uh, The one in China is called Yi Shan, uh, which was written around 860, where a fish is the reincarnated mother of the heroine Yi Shan, whose bones grant wishes to free the heroine from her wicked stepmother. In this version, there is a golden shoe, and in the end, she is whisked away by the king. Other versions also exist in Cambodia, Vietnam, and even a loose retelling in Arabian Nights. Of course, we have to talk about Disney Cinderella. It came out in 1950 and is based on the Charles Perrault version. This version, of course, has music to it, as well as some adorably helpful and animated mice. The most famous song probably would be A Dream is a Wish Your Heart Makes, and Bippity Boppity Boo being a close second. Cinderella's castle is prominently displayed at Disney World and Disneyland, as well as the opening credits for Disney movies. Penn, do you have a favorite version of Cinderella? That Ella Enchanted is actually my favorite. There was a time when I read it weekly, probably when I was in fifth grade. Um, But there was also another retelling of Cinderella around that time called Just Ella by Margaret Peterson Haddix. It was so gritty and honest. It takes place after Cinderella was taken away by the prince and the troubles that come with that after. Um, I also really love the cover on that book because Cinderella is pictured in her gown, but there's a like a tear on the picture so you can see that she's a commoner underneath. Another version I really loved was Rodgers and Hammerstein's Cinderella, the movie that was on TV and it had Brandy as Cinderella and Whitney Houston as the fairy godmother. The music was amazing and it was very confusing and cool to see people of all races together without it being like a central 
plot point. My sister and I would whirl around uh, in the living room uh, with the dance scenes and we would add in some square dancing because that was the dancing we knew from gym class. So we'd put in some do-si-dos there. And another really good favorite of mine was Ever After with Drew Barrymore and Angelica Houston. Love Danielle's personality and the incorporation of Leonardo da Vinci, Thomas More's Utopia, and even eventually the Brothers Grimm. I agree with all of those and Ever After will forever be one of my favorite Cinderella movies. Did you ever see the movie, The Cinderella Story with Hilary Duff and Chad Michael Murray? Oh my God. Yes, I did. But I don't remember it that well at all. Well, it came out in 2004, but it's a modern retelling. Let's add this movie to the millennial movie streaming party we're going to have someday, Penn. (laughs) Of course, there's a live action Disney remake of Cinderella. It was visually appealing, but not really novel. Yeah, I did like some of the music, but it wasn't anything new per se. But Ella Enchanted, I mean, I loved it so much that I went to a book signing by Gail Carson Levine and it was probably 15 years after I read the book. Like I was a grown ass adult and I didn't care because I love book signings so much. So, and um, I was so curious to see what she was like in person. And Gail Carson Levine was pretty cool. She talked about how her dad had influenced her writing. She wrote a book called Dave at Night, which is her favorite piece because it was so heavily inspired by her dad. It's about growing up in an orphanage on the Lower East Side in New York City in the Jewish community. I haven't read that one though, but it did come out in 1999, a few years after Ella Enchanted's success. So Ella Enchanted came out in 1997 and was a Newbery Honor book. So this award is a really big deal because it's given by the Association of Library Services to Children, a branch of the American Library Association. To be eligible, a book must be written by a United States citizen or resident and must be published first or simultaneously in the United States in English during the preceding year. It is named after John Newberry, who was a publisher for young adult books in the 18th century. This award has been around since 1922. And Holes, which we covered last episode, was the winner for 1999. And justly deserved. But let's crack this one open. We meet Ella, a girl that has been cursed at birth by the fairy Lucinda with the gift of obedience. As a result, Ella is always under the power of everyone who tells her what to do. And no matter what strange command she receives, she must obey. After Ella makes a friend she confides in, who makes Ella play games and lose, her mother, the Lady Eleanor, told Ella to never tell anyone about her curse. Ella loves laughing and playing with her mother and their cook, Mandy, while her merchant father, Sir Peter, is often away. One day, Lady Eleanor and Ella become sick. Mandy makes them a soup with unicorn hair. Ella drinks it and becomes, you know, feels better. But um, Lady Eleanor does not actually drink the, the soup and later dies. At her funeral, Ella is very distraught and she runs out to the graveyard to cry alone. That's where she meets the prince of the land, Charmot, who offers his condolences. Ella's touched that he offers a memory of Ella's mother. At the dinner following the funeral, Ella meets Dame Olga and her two horrid daughters, Hattie and Olive. The rapport between these two is something else. Olive is really dumb, but I would take her over Hattie's fake grandeur and just overall vileness. We should probably talk about the trope of the evil stepmother and stepsisters here. It's common amongst almost all the versions of Cinderella. It draws on fears of the non-traditional families or blending families, 
which, you know, in reality should not really be seen as bad or evil. One of my really good friends became a stepmom recently, and she's doing such a good job. Like, it's really touching to see her with her stepdaughter. She does her hair and they go shopping together. It is very, very cute. But on the other hand, I do actually have a friend who grew up with a stepmother that was very mean and emotionally abusive to her. Uh, And it's a memory that really lingers with her. And I don't think the title alone of stepmother is enough to say all stepmothers are this way, because it really depends on the woman who takes on the role and how she feels about her partner's children. Why don't we dive into this wicked stepmother trope? It's common in so many stories like Snow White, Hansel and Gretel, and even more modern stories like The Parent Trap, Lindsay Lohan version, of course. Of course. In more uh, fairy tale stories, the biological mother has passed away often during childbirth, and then the father remarries to find a new mother for the child and a partner for him. Uh, There are varying motivations for the stepmother to be wicked to their stepchild, jealousy over the attention from the father, or even um, the stepmother's own biological children. And a wicked stepmother is a great antagonist for a story. She helps set the stage for the main character as uh, providing someone a troubled home. It really helps crank up the drama for the story, as well as a motivation to move the plot forward. Uh, Mothers are supposed to be loving and nurturing creatures. And a stepmother is a twist on that. The wicked stepmother may be even relatable to the audience, as most people can relate to not really liking a new family member who is married in and seen as intruding outsiders. Uh, While researching this trope, I found a quote, better a serpent than a stepmother by Euripides, the ancient Greek philosopher. So this trope goes all the way back. And I really wonder what Euripides' stepmother did to him. She probably threw away his pet rock and told him to go get to a philosophizing. We did look into the statistics of child abuse with step parents and found a study that stated if the parents find new partners, children are 40 times more likely than those who live with biological parents to be sexually or physically abused. Although typically the stepfather or boyfriend are more likely to be the perpetrator with uh, and with higher risk age being from birth to age four, which is really makes me sick to my stomach. I agree with you, Rocky. Not all families are like this, but the ones that are can be so scary and damaging for a kid. There actually is a term called the Cinderella effect, where there are higher incidences of different forms of child abuse by step parents rather than biological parents. The most data collected from this has been from two scientists called Daly and Wilson, who studied 20,000 reports in the United States. And there's very powerful evidence there that when abusive parents have both step and genetic children, they generally spare their genetic children from any abuse. There's some speculation by evolutionary psychologists, which by the way, I didn't know was a thing, but that this Cinderella effect is a modern evolutionary development um, that supports parental investment theory, meaning that being a parent is so expensive and prolonged, 18 years at least in the United States, that resources are geared towards biological children rather than uh, stepchildren. I mean, we all know several people who have divorced or remarried and have been stepchildren or stepparents. Uh, Fortunately, all the people I know haven't had this problem. I can generally think of more positive step parenting in my personal friend group, but again, I have had some friends who had some really negative and damaging experiences in their childhood. And there's a site that discusses that when parents are getting divorced and starting to date again about how to manage with your new partner um, and your biological children or their biological children. And we can link it in the show notes. Back to Ella Enchanted, we took a dark turn there, but Mandy 
who is their cook, reveals that she is actually Ella's fairy godmother. But she cannot do any other fairy spell, including the curse on Ella. Ella's father sits with her for dinner and tells her that she will be attending finishing school with Hattie and Olive. The reader learns that Ella's father is cold towards her and it was not well matched with her mother. Before Ella leaves for finishing school, Mandy gives her a magical fairy book with stories, as well as ways to keep track of her loved ones, like Mandy, Char, and Sir Peter. This so reminds me of the Marauder's Map from Harry Potter in a way, being able to track others. Although this in this story, it's a storybook, so it's much more fun. And unpredictable, because you could count on the Marauder's Map to tell you where everyone was, but you had no idea in the storybook what it was going to tell you. Mandy also gives Ella her mother's valuable silver and pearl necklace. It's amazing how jewelry being passed down is such a pivotal point in many stories. Do you have any family jewelry, Pen? Um, I think my mom has some jewelry from her wedding. She's the youngest of 10 children with six older, sorry, with five older sisters. So I don't think they had enough jewelry to go around for my grandma. And I would argue that Indian jewelry is very pretty, but it's really startling if you wear it in America. I looked into it and in India, gold is alloyed with copper, giving it that bright yellow color. Uh, And it's usually a higher carat of gold. And all gold in general has to be combined with something else because it's too soft to keep it shape in its pure form but american white gold or pale gold is alloyed with platinum and silver which is why it looks lighter and i'm currently into rose gold though of course it's more of a fake costumey kind not the real kind how about you do you have a preference i love rose gold as well actually most of my jewelry including my wedding rings are rose gold um, and i've always found indian jewelry to be so beautiful i remember as a kid in india going to jewelry shops and admiring these intricate pieces it was a big uh, shopping trip that I would do with my mom and my my grandparents. I'm still very into the fun showy earrings as well. Those jewelry shops in India, they had air conditioning, free tea service, and sometimes cookies. It was a very lovely first class experience. And I think in America, they should maybe adopt some of these strategies. <laughs> I agree. So anyway, while they're traveling to finishing school, Hattie finds out that Ella will do anything she's told. Hattie is too unoriginal to find out why, but uses this to her advantage by making Ella do errands, like rub her feet, as well as doing mean things, like telling Ella she cannot be friends with Arita, who is uh, Ella's only friend at finishing school, as well as stealing Ella's necklace that was her mother's. So Ella who did not want to hurt her friend and also found out that her father will be attending a giant's wedding from her storybook, runs away from finishing school, which I don't blame her. (laughs) Her mandated obedience has made her quite accomplished, but she overall hated finishing school. She's helped by elves who give her a pony. However, she's stopped by ogres, but is able to charm them with her words and makes them fall asleep. Oh, the power of words, right? I enjoy how the different worlds have their own traits for species. Like in this world, centaurs are beautiful, but not smart. And Harry Potter, though, they're very wise and fierce. The elves in this book have green teeth and are very benign. um, But elves in other fantasies, like in Lord of the Rings, are very powerful and warlike. The ogres here are cunning and dangerous. And I think of the most famous ogre of all time, Shrek. And I would prefer him over the ones in the book. I need an ogre with layers. Ogres have layers. Onions have layers. Such a great movie. Well, Prince Char and his men run into Ella taming the ogres. And you can tell he's very impressed. 
Elle is definitely not a damsel in distress. I appreciate when the female character is allowed to be strong and be able to defend herself. Uh, Prince Char has one of his men escort Ella to the wedding. There she identifies a group of fairies, including Lucinda, by their tiny feet, which Ella herself has, having fairy blood. Lucinda has given the giant couple getting married the gift of never being able to leave each other, which is truly a heinous gift, especially if one of them was an introvert. Lucinda doesn't see the problem with the gift, and Ella begs Lucinda to take away her obedience, but Lucinda instead tells her to be happy to be obedient. I have to say the scene in the giant wedding where they act out their lives from beginning to end, it kind of reminds me how the Shroots get married from The Office. And if you think I talk about The Office too much, I'm not sorry. I will continue to do so. One of the many reasons we get along so well, Penn. Ella meets up with her father, who is happy to see her. He tells her that he is financially ruined. He schemes to have Ella marry a rich suitor, stacking the deck by having Ella eat mushrooms that make her more loving. However, Sir Peter finds out that the initial suitor he picked out isn't rich enough for them. And he ends up putting his own head in the noose, as he says, and marrying Dame Olga for her money. Who saw that coming? Lucinda makes it to the wedding and blesses the happy couple with the gift of everlasting love. I think Lucinda's into irony. She doesn't think at all about the different reasons people get married alongside love. While at the wedding, Prince Char and Ella unite, reunite. They wander through the abandoned castle where they find a pair of glass slippers that fit Ella's small feet exactly. They dance together and are caught sliding down the slide the stairs together. On the way home, Dame Olga finds out that Sir Peter is poor and actually did marry her for her money. She, of course, is mandated to love Sir Peter because of Lucinda's curse, but is furious that Ella has to live with them. As soon as Sir Peter leaves on business, she moves Ella into the servants' quarters and treats her as the help. Patty tells Dame Olga and Olive about Ella's obedience, cementing their power over Ella. Ella and Char write letters to each other during this period. They find out about each other's personalities, and it's clear that the to the reader that they have chemistry. Penn, did you ever have a pen pal? I had a French pen pal named Sophie in middle school. I think we had to write a page in French and a page in English so each of us could work on our language language skills. Uh, It was a very short-lived experience over a year that was very sporadic. How about you? I think the closest I had to a pen pal is my college roommate who was very creative and loved scrapbooking. And she'd make me these beautiful handmade cards written, you know, with, uh, with stories written in them. Um, and she'd send me those all the time. I, I have a whole collection still of them. And actually at the beginning of this pandemic, I had these grandiose plans to start writing letters to folks to try to revive the written word and support the postal service, but it really hasn't worked out very much yet. So in in each of these letters, Char teases Ella and asks her if she's old enough to get married yet. Ella responds in kind with silly jokes about being too young or too short or too tired to be married. At last, a letter comes where Char proclaims his love for Ella and seriously asks for marriage. Ella, who has fallen in love with him, decides against accepting accepting this as her curse could be used used as a weapon against Char and the kingdom. She writes him a letter, posing as Hattie, telling him that Ella has eloped with a rich man. Ella is devastated at her sacrifice. She sees Char in her book, Burning Ella's Letters. She later sees a diary entry from Arita, her old friend from finishing school, uh, where Arita actually asks Char about Ella. Arita defends Ella from Char's accusation that Ella is happy because she is now married to a rich man. What a terrific, wonderful friend. 
Later, Char holds a mass ball over three nights where it is rumored he will pick his bride. Ella shows up in a mask, her mother's gown, and glass slippers to look at Char secretly. She does this over the three nights, ingratiating herself with Char with an alternate personality so he wouldn't recognize her. Hattie snatches the mask of Ella where her identity is exposed. Ella runs away from the ball, losing one of her glass slippers. You know, I always thought glass slippers were a terrible choice for a ball. I'd be terrified of them breaking and cutting my feet. You would never catch me wearing any kind of see-through shoe. To me, it would look like sausages squished in a casing. And I'm sorry for that visual, but shoes are supposed to be cute, not revolting. Being a mom now, and honestly, even before, I've realized the importance of comfortable shoes. I no longer buy shoes unless I try them on and I know they're comfortable, no matter how cute they are. Do you wear kids so you can have the whitest sneakers? Do you feel God in this chilies tonight? Again, with office references, Pen. Later that night, Prince Tremont comes to her house and places a slipper onto her foot. Hattie and Olive claim it's theirs, but their feet are too big. Ella tries it and it fits. Char asks again Ella to marry him, while Dame Olga, Hattie, and Olive try to tell Ella what to do. Ella, using all her strength, refuses to marry him even though she loves him. She does this to protect Char and the kingdom, and her disobedience ultimately breaks breaks the curse. I really love that there's an explanation of her tiny feet being uh, because of her fairy blood. So only her feet would be the ones that would fit the shoe. And I also think the the trope of selflessness by a female partner is here, but it's nice that it isn't there without any manipulation by the male partner who's mostly in the dark for the whole story. Like Ella really loves Char and saves him out of her own goodness, even though it means she has to stay in her horrible life. I also really like how this story takes away that whole love at first sight issue which we commonly see in traditional stories of cinderella where she meets a handsome man and of course he's going to be handsome on the inside and they get married and it's wonderful um and she the author takes that away because they have this whole backstory before going to this ball so once she's free ella explains her curse of obedience to prince char they get married where lucinda gives them an actual gift and ella and char have children and live happily ever after as many fairy tales do. To me, it was interesting as like an extra point in the story that Ella is so good at languages. They've mentioned it throughout the book, but it isn't vital to the plot at all. It's almost like the anti-Chekhov's gun. So why don't we call it Chekhov's flower pot? It was still very neat that she was able to learn these languages so quickly. I wish I had that skill. Do you have any languages, Rocky? You know what? I spent six years in grade school learning Spanish, but I certainly don't recall most of it. And my parents speak a few different Indian languages, including Tamil. And I understand uh, those languages, but can't speak them. But I would love to learn one day. My parents would speak to me in their language, a South Indian dialect called uh, Malayalam. But I would answer them in English. And one summer, my mom tried to teach us the alphabet, but it was super difficult. Um, I took French in high school, so I can probably read it a little better than I can speak it. And I took Spanish 101 in college, and it was truly awful. Uh, I kept on saying we instead of C and everyone in the class had taken five years of Spanish in high school. They were there for the easy A. So the the class kind of just buzzed along and I felt like an idiot the whole time. I did not take the next course. There is a movie made from this book, but in name only. There were so many changes made to the plot to make it pretty different. The movie came out in 2004 while the book came out in 1997. And Anne Hathaway starred as Ella with Hugh Dancy as Prince Char. Gail Carson Levine stayed, 
uh, states that the film is so different from the book that it's hard to compare them, noting that the addition of new characters such as Sir Edgar and Heston and suggested regarding this movie as a separate creative act. There's also a lot of singing of which Anne Hathaway did her own vocals. I love that Parminda Nagra of Bend It Like Beckham fame played Arita. It was great to see that representation. Um, and I believe she got this role shortly after um, being in the hit Bend It Like Beckham. Love to see it. And I also wanted to add, just to make folks feel super old, Bend It Like Beckham came out 20 years ago. Do you know, as a fun story, when Bend It came, Like Beckham came out, people did ask me at Halloween why I didn't come dressed as a character from Bend It Like Beckham, which actually did happen on The Office. So it is a true fact. It really did happen to Indian girls across the land. Okay. Um, but there were other famous people in uh, Ella Enchanted. Uh, Minnie Driver, Vivica A. Fox, and Heidi Klum were also on the cast list. I also remember hating the movie when it came out. I was very disappointed. Um, I didn't see the point of the musical aspect to it. I didn't understand the point of like the new characters. I thought the book was lovely enough to just be directly transposed into film. I actually really enjoyed the music from the movie, but I was also very upset about how different it was from the book. I'm a big Anne Hathaway fan, so I couldn't hate the movie altogether. Um, And I actually still have the soundtrack on my Amazon music account. We'd be interested to hear your thoughts on the book and movie, Ella Enchanted. Let us know on our Instagram page or Facebook, Booking Back Pod. Join us next week as we cover the book Speak by Laurie Hulse Anderson. Please join us again for our next episode where we dive into another book from our past. Make sure you're following us on social media where we list upcoming books as well as behind the scenes, fun facts, and trivia for each episode. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Booking Back Pod. Until next time, don't be afraid to book back.